Hey, good morning, everybody, and welcome to the podcast. This morning, I have as my special guest, Elon Trotman. Elon is a saxophonist who, though he was born and learned to play music in Barbados, he moved to Boston uh, when he went to college to go to the Berklee School of Music, uh, the great uh, jazz and pop music school in uh, Boston, and has continued to live there, making his home there. He taught school for a while there. But Elon has had a tremendous amount of success, and he's only in his mid-30s. One of my interests in this podcast is to talk to musicians who have not only unusual backgrounds, but who have done something I admire, which is to come into this very competitive field of smooth jazz and contemporary jazz music and make a real name for themselves. And Elon has certainly done that. So anyway, without further ado, let's meet Elon Trotman. Good morning, Elan. How is it in Boston today? Uh, it's not too bad, actually. It's mid-40s, a uh, little rain, but... <laughs> I know, I know. It's it's. I'm on the East Coast, too. I'm out, out of Baltimore, Maryland, Washington, D.C., and it's just, you know, you guys have had a whole different kind of winter than we've had, though. The amount of snow you had was just unbelievable. That had to be, I don't know, maybe you're used to it. I don't know how long you've been in Boston, but that has to be quite a contrast to the tropical island that you grew up in in uh, Barbados and uh, have you made your peace with what it's like to live in this kind of weather yeah you know I try not to think about it man uh <laughs> it's yeah. it is what it is but uh this uh, winter was definitely uh one of the worst that I've ever seen if not the yeah, worst yeah I'm yeah no the just the amount of snow you all had was a whole whole different thing I mean we had real real cold here it got down below zero and stayed there for one week and that's that's just really unusual. You start worrying about, you know, how your house is going to hold up in that. Is, are you going to have a pipe break? You never know what's going to happen. But I'm, I'm glad that you're, you're through the worst of it now. You can, you can definitely see spring, you know, around the corner, I hope, anyway. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Well, you know, there's, we, we have never talked before, so this is nice for me. I, I've been doing this podcast now for 10 years. Uh, but I've used it until recently as a way to uh, give people information every time I release a new album. And and just I get a lot of questions, as I'm sure you do, from people who are fans that want to know all kinds of different things about the music and, and how it's created. And so I've used it primarily for that. But a couple months ago, I, I just started thinking about how much fun it would be to talk to musicians that are, have a particularly interesting background and especially musicians like yourself who are really the new wave to me of of what's going on with contemporary jazz do you do you consider yourself part of like a uh, a next generation uh, in in jazz and contemporary jazz definitely you know i'm 36 and um i definitely see myself you know being one of the pioneers of of the new you know new wave of artists um the the guys that i grew up listening to uh you know from a a young teenager in barbados you know they're probably i don't want to say at the end of their careers but they're definitely at the point where you know they're on on the on the back nine you know and yeah i know i know and some of i mean i don't want to mention names uh, but yeah, you know there 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 seems like 
some of those artists, they're just as fresh as ever. They're continuing to try to come up with new things and go in new places. But it also seems like a fair amount of them are kind of playing the back nine, as you put it. And, and, you know, I wouldn't say they're going through the motions, but I'm really very much of the belief that the, the blessing of a career in music is that you get to keep studying, keep getting better for a lifetime at something that you love. And, uh, you know, I personally never want to get complacent. I'm always trying new stuff and uh you know especially in the studio where where we now have so much ability you know to do just about anything we want in terms in terms of hearing what something might sound like before we get players involved and 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 that kind of thing and in terms of your your albums i noticed that you definitely do something that i think is different and exciting which is work with younger producers and people who may not necessarily be involved in smooth jazz on a regular basis who who are some of the producers that you've worked with on on the last record tropicality or or even before then well i think my my love and sax album from 2011 and uh this time around 2009 those were the two that i really kind of showcased some of the younger Mm -hmm. producers um all berkeley guys that i met i met in boston you know in the uh, right in the late 90s, 1998, 99, when I was at Berkeley. And mm-hmm. they were primarily, you know, producers for R&B and, and hip-hop artists. And I thought it would be cool to, you know, bring in that element and and then just use the, the sax to kind of smooth it out a bit with some simple melodies and some very, you know, singable hooks. So uh, there's one, right, guy, this... one guy named uh, Herman Johnson. He goes by the name Peanut. He's based mm-hmm. in Atlanta right now. He's working with Tyler Perry, and he plays drums with Monica and some other R&B singers. He did, you know, the majority of tracks for me. So a lot of times he would just send me tracks, and I'd write to them, or I would send mm. him, you know, a demo of, you know, an idea that I had, and he would just build it up. For- wow, that's great. Yeah, no, I, I, I think that they bring a sensibility and, and ideas that you just would never think of probably on your own or a different angle towards something or maybe when they're writing something they send to you it just makes you go in a place you wouldn't normally go i mean i think that's the beauty anytime you bring in players you know and and producers is they they have ideas you just would have never had cuz you know lord knows you can you can kind of do everything in terms of sound now without necessarily bringing in players but then you don't have the ideas that they bring to the table and and in in the case of a producer you know and somebody you're co-writing with it's it's huge i think uh what was um do you do a lot of recording uh of for your music and composing like in in a home studio at least to begin definitely um i try to use all all the resources that I have available, you know, like the garage band and, you know, pro tools on my laptop, especially when I'm traveling. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I do get get ideas very often for melodies and, and just grooves and stuff like that. So I definitely like to get the ball rolling by putting an arrangement together and and then I'll bring in people after that. But I've always had a hand in my production. Even when I do go to producers, like I went to Jeff Lorber a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. and t- I took three songs to him. But he, you know, he's like, "Well, you already kind of picked the musicians, you picked the keys, you did the arrangements. So 
you don't really need a producer, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's one of the cool things I think about Jeff is that he's really a musician's producer and, you know, he's, he doesn't, he's so accomplished. He really doesn't need to incorporate himself <laughs> into something just to say he did it, you know? So he's going to be honest like that, which I think is great. What, what was it? But he did, did he end up doing some producing with you on, on those songs? Um, you know, he, he kind of just came in and helped me out wherever I needed some assistance mm -hmm. as far as, you know, editing and mixing and doing some playing, obviously. Right, right. And um, now, are you also involved in, in the mixing process of your own records? Um, of late, I try not to be involved. Mm -hmm. you know, I'm trying to focus more on, on the playing aspect and mm -hmm. just deliver the best performance that I can mm -hmm. in the studio and let other people worry about that stuff. Right. And again, are you, do you have a lot of resources from your time at Berkeley, people that uh, are still in Boston that you, you work with and, and you, you respect for that kind of work, you know, like mixing and mastering? Definitely, man. I value the relationships that I made at Berkeley. There are people all over the music industry that, you know, pass through Berkeley and they're working with some of the biggest names in the business. So it's it's really cool to just be able to know that whatever city you go to, that there's some Berkeley alum there that they're going <laughs> right. to look out for you. Exactly. I remember when I lived in L.A. in uh, most of the 80s, uh, I had a lot of friends who had moved west, you know, who had gone to Berkeley or taught at Berkeley or both. And every year when the NAMM show came around in, in L.A. in January, there'd be like a Berkeley convention, you know, uh, and there'd be literal, literally dozens of, of people having lunch together because I was friends with a lot of these guys. Uh, you know, I'd, I'd be part of that. And it, it was great to see. You know, you're right. It's 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 a little bit it's it's the closest thing we have in the jazz world to a music fraternity, I think. Uh, and, you know, so many successful people have come out of there, um, some that a lot of people have heard of and some that are working and staying busy and aren't necessarily, necessarily big names. But uh, now, do you still have a relationship with Berkeley uh, in Boston in any way? You don't teach there, I don't think, do you? No, I've never taught at Berkeley. I taught in mm -hmm. Boston public schools. Um, oh, you did. Are you still doing that? No, not anymore. I taught up until uh -huh. about 2013. Uh, oh, that's great. Ele wow. Elementary what, what, music. What was that? What, what grades were you teaching? I taught from kindergarten to fifth grade, beginner oh, band, uh, beginner band and chorus. Oh, that's great. That Those are actually great ages, in my opinion. I got a degree in music education from the University of Wisconsin out in Madison, speaking of speaking of cold. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I student taught a lot of different ages, but I love teaching that age group. Um, you know, they're, they're very open and, uh, they haven't gotten to that point. Like, oh man, I, I, I student taught junior high. That was, that was really, really hard. Uh, <laughs> they're, they're in another place, you know, they're not, not old enough yet in high school where, where, where they come back around. Uh, but in elementary school, I think they're still very fresh and and open to what you have to say. What 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 did you, as a musician, for your own music? It might seem very, very different to most people that you know teaching um, kindergarten through through fifth grade compared to your uh, very successful career as a performer and and as a composer. But I'm sure you got something out of that 
experience that lent itself to your to your own music i'm curious what those what those things were yeah definitely well you know even when i was doing my student teaching uh it was in the brookline public schools i did a high school jazz and concert band um mm -hmm. i think that's you know at that age level it's a little easier to kind of relate to some of the things that you have to practice you know you're kind of practicing what you're teaching almost with you know right. with you know repetition and and discipline and different things like that at the elementary level it was more of uh I felt like I was just kind of planting seeds you know mm -hmm. but it definitely mm -hmm. took me back to a place where I when I got my start and I always remember you know if people had if my parents and my family had never put instruments in my hands that I would never be where I am, so I always right. see that as an opportunity to give these kids an an option. You know, well, you know, you don't have to be a doctor or you don't have to be a scientist, but you know, being a, a musician, a professional musician, is a, is a career option. You know, and right, help, helping right. them to discover the arts and to be creative and to be able to express themselves. I think that was just a a very special opportunity for me to be able to share that with them. I think you're right that really what it's really about is that, you know, you're their first introduction to the arts and to the idea that they can be creative in some way that might actually lead them other places where it's hard to say, but, you know, you're that introduction to that. And that, that's, a, that's a pretty powerful position when you think about it. Now, you, you started playing piano first, right? Yeah, my, my folks got me into piano lessons uh, at a young age and... Mm -hmm. It really introduced me to theory. Um, there you go. Exactly. I started with piano, too, for five years before I picked up the guitar. And I was going to ask you, because I have very specific memories of that and what it had to do with going to the guitar, but I'm very curious what, for you, what you got the most out of those piano lessons that helped you when you made the transition to saxophone. Right. Well, you know, to this day, the piano is is kind of like my calculator. So mm -hmm, even mm -hmm. when I'm improvising or when I'm spelling out chords, you know, I'm still visualizing the keys on, on the piano because, you know, a saxophone, you can only play one note at a time. Um, if you're trying to play a chord, you know, you kind of have to break it up. So, right. but with the pianos, everything is is right in front of you and I my knowledge of harmony you know it and it really brought certain things to light by sitting in front of a piano and spelling out chords and seeing the relationship between you know the intervals and the minor the tonalities with minor and major and diminish and so as a as a horn player or any musician, I, I think you know it's important to have a foundation in harmony, and 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 that comes from you know the, the keyboard is one of the the first instruments that you know harmony people explored harmony through. Right, exactly. And now, was did the theory come as part of your piano lessons, or did you just have a teacher with a lot of vision to to because? You know, most seven, eight, nine-year-olds, they're, they're just being taught how to play notes on the piano and what the names of the notes are. Theory is something else. Was How did, how did that come about? 
Well, you know, Barbados was uh, a British colony, mm -hmm. so I had to do these um, these tests, uh, these performance uh, exams every year through the Royal School of Music in London. They would send us these booklets, and they have different levels, you know, uh, stage one, stage two, and you would kind of work your way up with the proficiencies, um, but all of the theory was based off of the the British system. So, you know, in America, you guys call it, you know, half note, a quarter note. But in, <laughs> in Barbados, I learned them as a crotchet and a quaver and a minim. <laughs> right, right. I'm familiar with that. And I had to kind of relearn it when I went to Berkeley. But there was definitely uh, a, re a relationship between the, the practical, the playing, and the, mm -hmm. the, the theory. They were definitely introducing me to, you know, treble clef, bass clef, and Quarter note. And, and how about how about ear training? Was there some emphasis on that too? No, not that much. Not much ear training. It was mostly theory. Yeah. Right. Right. I, the reason I asked that is because I I understand what you're saying. There was a system and a set of tests, and so there were certain things you had to be proficient at as part of taking piano lessons. Uh, with my experience, you just took from you know a single teacher or a group of teachers and. They did their method, you know, whatever that was. But I, I just remember when some of my fondest memories of my piano lessons. I used to go twice a week, once for a regular lesson, and then once with a group of five or six other kids for uh, theory and ear training. And we used to play a game they called baseball, where the teacher would play a note and tell you what it was, and then you had to look away, and she'd play another note, and you had to tell what note that was based on relative pitch. And uh, and it was great, you know. So what, by the time that I started trying to figure out songs off of the radio on the guitar, I had some idea of how music worked. You know, it wasn't real formal, but you know, I had some ear training experiences, some idea how music worked. And so, and most people I've talked to, like yourself, who started with piano and then made the switch to the instrument that turned out to be their instrument, the piano was just kind of an introduction to music. There wasn't any kind of formalization to the theory part of it. So uh, it, 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 it's cool to hear that that happened for you, you know, as part of that. I guess there's some good things about that English system. And and when you switched to sax at 12, I'm ha what what made that happen? I mean, why didn't you just stay with the piano? Um, what, what was the experience that that sort of transitioned you into, and I would imagine feeling like you had to ha get a saxophone and play? Yeah, you know, I was in probably about seventh grade, you know, middle school, and mm -hmm. at that time I was, I would help out the music teacher at the morning assemblies because we would do these hymns, and I would, uh, sometimes I would ask the band instructor to let me do the accompaniment for the hymns so I get to play in front of the entire school and accompany them as they're singing these hymns. and. Right. But I don't know. I think the saxophone in particular kind of caught my eye, man. Uh, I was hanging out at the in the band room and hanging out with all the, the band kids. And they actually put a French horn in my hand. That was the first instrument, band instrument that they gave me uh, when I wow. went and, and tried out. And uh, so I was playing French horn and also the euphonium, which is like a you know small tuba, a baritone. Right. Uh, so I did that for, you know, about a year or so, but I got very bored and, you know, I realized that the, the saxophone players were getting all the solos 
<laughs> right. And they was they just started working on uh, in the mood, uh, and I said, you know, I want to play I want that saxophone solo part in, in the mood. So right, I, right, right, exactly. They 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 look like they're the ones having all the fun. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's great. And so it was a it was a pretty natural transition. And which did you start on 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 tenor or, or? alto? Oh, you did. Yeah. Of of the different saxes, I mean, are do you you're pretty much focused on the tenor these days? I think, right? Yeah, I've been playing uh mostly tenor and some soprano as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this the soprano is such a. Uh, a, a, a great instrument, but such a tricky one. I, I've ha, have you. Is that something that you spend a fair amount of time practicing, even though it's not necessarily the your main sax? Definitely, yeah. You have to as a, as a horn player and a multi instrumentalist. You you have to put in time on each instrument. Um, the size of the mouthpiece is, is so drastic, uh, changing mm-hmm. between tenor and soprano that. The, t- the soprano is very easy to to play out of tune. You know, you can easily be flat um, if you don't have the, st- the, the stamina um, of your embouchure. If you just pick it up once a week or, you know, for the show, it's it's really tough to make it through an entire show without your muscles giving out and, you know, playing out of tune. So I definitely try to keep my embouchure tight and keep those muscles tight. And in terms of of wearing those different hats, where you go from say soprano to tenor, from one song to the next, obviously stylistically there's differences, but physically, what is is going to the tenor kind of like putting on a comfortable pair of shoes, and is it kind of like that, or are they both, you know, is there a transition that happens every time you you make that switch? I don't notice it that much um, now. I think the more you mm-hmm. the more you do it, the easier and more the more natural it becomes. You know, right. Grover went from you know soprano to tenor to alto to Barry on stage. You know, Ooh. yeah. I say he made it. He made it seem so natural. You know, because right. obviously he did it a lot. Yeah, I th- I think that um, what you hit it hit upon it when you talked about the intonation issues because I, I I've worked with a number of really excellent alto or tenor players when I lived in LA and uh, they would switch to soprano and you suddenly there were tuning issues that were never even a, a thought when they were playing alto or tenor. I think the only player I played with, you might be familiar with him, Bob Shepard. I don't know if you're familiar with his work. He's a, a great straight ahead jazz player. Okay. Um, but he's he's out of L.A. still is, I think. But he was one of the few that had the soprano thing down, you know, and 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 I never I to, to tell you the truth until you said what you said about the embouchure and the muscles, not just so much the change, but the, the tightness that's necessary. I didn't realize that that was such a key to it. I experienced some of that when I switched back and forth between electric guitar and, and classical guitar because the strings are very much farther apart on nylon string guitars than electric. Uh, but the reason I asked about your if tenor felt like kind of going back to home, that's how it is for me when I go to the classical guitar. That feels home. It's not harder because the strings are farther apart. It's actually easier. It's when I switch to electric and the strings are close that I suddenly have to make a small adjustment, you know. So, I, you know, if you like different sounds and you like to have different voices, you just have to figure out how to do it, you know. Uh, it's, 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 it's so great to be able to do it. So, um, you know, uh, now, you know, one, one thing that's 
very different about you besides the fact that you're you're coming at this from a different um, growing up someplace different and uh, you know being one of the next next generation of of contemporary jazz players. When when I got involved with smooth jazz, it was when radio was just coming to form, uh, you know, a link of stations all throughout the country. This would have been in like the early 1990s. But when you hit the scene, radio was still around, but it was starting to, it was already starting to break up. And so you've done everything you've done without that same kind of aid that radio gave so many of the people at the beginning of, of smooth jazz. What, what was that like for you to, to break through without having as much radio available to you? Yeah. Uh, you know, that's one of the challenges. Uh, that's probably the biggest challenge, but I'll tell Mm -hmm. you a quick story that kind of put things in perspective for me. I was Mm -hmm. recording on Brian Simpson's, uh, just what you need album i played on his title track uh recorded mm-hmm. at his studio in la and uh on one of the plaques that he had on his studio wall was uh from his song uh a billboard chart from when his song um with dave cause uh, it's all good that was brian's oh, yeah. single that uh was that number one for about you know 20, 30-something weeks on Billboard. (laughs) And I looked at the spins, and he was getting 600... He got 650 spins that week from Billboard Billboard stations. And, you know, at that time, I was recording one of my albums, and, you know, I had had a couple singles on radio, and I knew Mm -hmm. you needed probably about 100 Billboard spins to get in the top 30. So that kind of put things in perspective for me. I was like, wow, you know, uh, things are really, really different now. <laughs> yeah, they really are. And you know what? Even even then, because we, you know, I've been running my own record label since 1990. And even even back then, because we'd get Billboard every week and radio and records and all the different trades that were around then. And we would see the number one songs in all the other formats would be 2,500 to 3,000 spins a week. And the smooth smooth jazz would be 640 or 700 if it was a big hit. And even back then, you went, this is not the same, you know. Um, but when you see the comparison from, you know, like you're saying, to when the radio, smooth jazz radio was in its heyday, and it's still very difficult to have a breakthrough song at what is now called smooth jazz radio. It's just as hard as it ever was. Uh, there's just as much competition, I think. Yeah, uh, but, you know, to answer your question, um, I, you know, my success so far, you know, is definitely has not been based off of radio. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I... For me, you know, one of my models is I worry about the things that I can control. You know, I can't mm-hmm. I can't control getting to number one on the charts. You know, I can't necessarily control how many festivals I play on, but I can control, you know, the performance, the quality of the performance that I deliver. So I look at being on stage. Every time I have an opportunity to play on stage, I look at that as the best opportunity, the best forum for me to show people, you know, what I'm capable of doing, you know, and I still think that that's the best audition, man, to, for people to actually hear you play and see, see your performance live and in person. So, 
if I can continue to, you know, just keep delivering good performances and, and keep working on my craft, I think that that's really what's left of this genre, man, just the, the performing. There's really not much radio left, and it's really just the, the little festivals and the clubs that are left, so I'm just trying to, you know, hopefully it'll come, come back around, but for me, it's, I just I'm just trying to get as much exposure as possible and hopefully you know that'll keep me keep the forward progress right well and i think in many ways for a great player like yourself performing live even gives you even more of an open field to show what you can do uh there's i'm sure you've heard people say to you after a show i I didn't even know that i like smooth jazz so much (laughs) yeah definitely (laughs) i hear that a lot it happens all the time, and and uh, you know it's because the live performance takes it to a whole other place, and the breadth of what you can do, the 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 you know the width of it, you can really show and really showcase it in a live performance that, um, you know, uh, it, it, uh, radio only sh- shows really a little glimmer of what of these players can do. I'm I'm sure you've had that experience a few times playing at festivals where you hear other people play that you may have only heard on the radio and you go, Oh man, I had no idea what that they were capable of that. <laughs> uh, I had only heard, I'd only heard the guitarist Jeff Golub on, on radio. And it wasn't until I did a festival that he was on in Denver that I was like, Oh man, this guy's a killer player. Uh, I just didn't know, you know, cause I'd never heard his live show, you know, that, that, that thing. Well, that's a great attitude. I think, you know, controlling what you can control um, I, I mean, I notice you have a very active presence on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, I, I don't know if you're doing Instagram or not. Um, but, you know, these are all things that, that we can control. Uh, and, uh, and those things were not around. I mean, when we started Positive Music, we used to have a listening line where people could call and hear a cassette recording played of what our latest releases were. I mean, that's what the technology was like in 1992. So, you know, we have a lot more that we can control is what I'm trying to say. Um, you know, are, are, so for you, touring and playing live or what it's really all about in, in terms of, of, you know, exposing more and more people to your art, um, how, how do you look at recording then in terms of how it relates to touring and, and to your, and to your career in general? Well, you know, I, I take pride in, in performing my own music. You know, I love writing and I think that's all a part of, of your evolution as an artist, finding your sound and your brand. Exactly. So I'm, you know, still trying different things and experimenting but i have a somewhat of a a base a basis of the sound that i'm looking for or the the brand that i'm trying to create and whenever people hear the name elon trotman they they kind of have a certain expectation of they're going to hear some influences of the music of the caribbean you know in right so I, I want to keep writing and recording, um, and I think it goes hand in hand, you know, to be able to, to get on stage and showcase your music, and it, it's all related. It's all relative. Yeah, I think composing and recording, you know, really go hand in hand, too. Uh, it, it's it's uh, the fact that you're also writing, 
uh, is, I think, so critical to developing your own voice. And because and, uh, a part of your voice, a big part of your voice, obviously, is literally what, what people hear from you, the saxophone. But it's, it's the context you put that saxophone voice in that I think is also, a, you know, a really big part of what makes you sound like you. And you alluded to that, like with tropicality, you know, the idea that people are going to hear so, some of the Caribbean influences. They're just, I'm sure they're just woven into your music. You couldn't get them out if you wanted them to at this point. Well, yes and no. I mean, I it took me a while to kind of figure out the, the smooth jazz sound because I didn't, <laughs> you know, it wasn't really a part of my what I grew up the music I grew up listening to you know it didn't come naturally for me to just be able to create that radio sound so mm-hmm. you know at some point I actually had to forget about you know my native music and really focus on trying to 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 get that radio sound and get that that contemporary jazz sound and then once I kind of figured it out with the help of you know some people like Peter White that kind of helped me with some of my albums once I kind of figured out what the the main characteristics were for that, then I was able to bring back in some of the other elements of my native music and kind of fuse them. But at one right. point, I just had to take a step back because I'm like, you know, smooth jazz is is not a very complicated, it you know, style of music, or it, it's very simple, you know that. Less is more, almost, you know, and mm-hmm. it took me a while to kind of figure that out and to try to stop trying to do so much harmonically and, you know, with the arrangements and stuff and just try to make some chill, easy listening, cool music. But, you know, obviously still with a good balance. Right. Well, you're talking about what radio was looking for and to, and, and to some degree what there's some of them are still looking for. Um, you know, I, 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 I. I really, uh, you know, back back in the the heyday of with radio, they were really, you know, kind of dictating almost uh, what kind of records people were making. I, I, this is one of the good things, and there's a lot of bad things about radio disappearing. But one of the good things is it freed up artists to not have to think that way. Uh, maybe they think maybe they're if they write something like if I write something and I know this is the smooth jazz side of me coming out, then I'm going to try to produce it and, and finalize it so that it really works and so that radio is going to play it. But, you know, the other 90, the other 90% of the record, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to go into the future. I think of it as contemporary jazz, you know, and uh, a player like you who has roots and that go really deep with, not just with uh, the, the music you grew up with, but just jazz in general, um, you know, it's it's to be able to pull all that together, all those different things gives you, I think, a unique advantage of having a stew that only you can have. Uh, you know what I mean? It's you know, and and that that's that's exciting to me. You know, because I think you you spoke earlier about things coming back around again. I think you're right. I mean, jazz in general, I've seen it. Believe me, <laughs> I've I've lived a little longer than you have, so I've seen an an extra twenty five years or so of of jazz going in and out of fashion. Um, you know, and it it may not it's not in fashion right now. Let's be honest, it it just isn't. Uh, which is we go up, we could talk endlessly about what a shame that is, but you know, um, 
but it, it'll come back again, you know. Now, you also do a fair amount of recording with other artists as well, um, you know, in support of their music. I think you recently did a project with Jonathan Butler. Yeah, I did a song on Jonathan's latest album. Yeah. What, what, tell me about that experience. He's such, he's such a wonderful player and such a natural uh, uh, musician, but he's also such a good guy. And I, I'm always wondering what it would be like to work in the studio with him. Yeah, JB, he's a, he's a genius uh, musically um, as a writer, as a performer. Uh, he just has so much knowledge of, of music, uh, a phenomenal player. Uh, the song that I played on, you know, I just happened to be, we were actually going to play golf, and just before we were getting ready to leave the house, he's like, hey, man, you got your horn with you? I got got this song <laughs> that uh, John, that uh, Marcus Miller just wrote with me, and maybe we could use some sax on it. So, you know, I just happened to be in the right place at the right time to get on that, that song. Um, That's great. But I did get to tour with him a couple summers ago, so I really got mm-hmm. an opportunity to to see him stretch out on stage and exactly, just right. to be up close and personal with that is, it's amazing, man. He's just a very, very super talented guy and his uh, playing is, is, is just amazing. Uh, I mean, as you said, you know, it's one thing to hear records, but to actually see a person live uh, ev- and play the same, the same song, you know, 10 different, at 10 different right. shows is you just yeah. see the the depth of the knowledge because every time is so different and so unique that exactly the, the exactly. versatility man is it's crazy yeah to hear them night after night like you said playing the same song and and realize they're not relying on uh licks and patterns and and you know they're actually hearing that and the other thing is they're free enough that they can just let it go you know they can they can take the chances uh, you know, and not, not every, not all jazz musicians, certainly not that many smooth jazz musicians operate that way. Uh, but he definitely does. He he's, and you know, if that's again, that live jazz experience is in the hands of a master, you, you know, it, it, it's something else entirely different than, than, than the album. And certainly the one cut that people might hear on the radio, you know, it's a whole nother thing. And you, you also did some work in the studio with Michael McDonald. Is that right? Didn't record with Michael. I performed with Michael ah. on uh, Dave Cos Cruise in 2012. Oh, that's cool. What what was what's what was he like as a, as to to work with as a live performer? Uh, he's a phenomenal musician. Um, his keyboard playing was pretty impressive to me, man. Uh, <laughs> of course, his voice is is just so recognizable. One of the most recognizable voices in 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 recording history. Um, but super nice guy, uh, very talented. And it was, again, you know, to, to be able to be on stage and, and to play on some of the songs that I grew up, you know, singing to on the radio as a young kid, not ever dreaming that, no, not even beyond meeting the person that was the, of the voice I was hearing to be able to be on stage with them and actually be a, be a part of those songs, you know, is very humbling man so i was just i was just kind of soaking it all in while you know i got to sing some background vocals with him too on and you know stuff like um all the motown stuff he did as well as oh yeah yeah uh you know keep forgetting and all the big hits man i sang some backgrounds and got to take some solos so that was yeah that was definitely one of the highlights of uh of this musical journey for me 
Oh, that's that's great. And I know, you know, you mentioned his piano playing being impressive to you. And, you know, it's that his piano work is so tied to those songs. You know, some a lot of those figures uh, that we we don't necessarily the audience may not necessarily think of that because they're thinking of these great melodies and that signature voice. But those piano parts are the the whole basis of, of some of those songs, especially some of those huge hits he had with the Doobie Brothers. Uh, you know, that I think you're referring to. Yeah, that's like a dream come true when something like that happens, I think. Uh, you you realize just how far you've come uh, and when you're in the middle of an experience like that. Now, we were talking about recording before. Are you, are you writing and thinking about what the next album is going to be about at this point? Yeah, I'm actually almost halfway through. I got about four songs done. Um, I actually started making some tracks on my own this time i just Mm -hmm. had some ideas and my production has gotten much better i think just from being in the company of people like brian simpson and jonathan butler and paul brown and peter white you know kind of and jeff lorber just kind of learning as i've been around them watching and listening and learning I pay close attention, so I've been able to use some of those experiences and some of that information to kind of help critique my my own production, you know, and and it's helped me to to kind of sound a little more experienced and a little more mature as far as being a producer. So, well, and when the bar, when you're around things where the bar is high, that's where you set the bar for yourself and. You know, so I'm sure that has something to do with it, too. You have a way you think it should sound based on a high quality. So that's what you start to go for. And you said you were using Pro Tools. And um, I know it's amazing what you can get out of GarageBand, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, it's, there's so much that's, that's available now. I, I've been using uh, some really great stuff from a company called Spectrasonics. I don't know if you're familiar with them. Yeah, I've heard of them. I I have their their they're all you know virtual instruments that are right in your computer. I I use Trillion, which is just some of the most ab- amazing acoustic and electric bass stuff. If you know what you're doing, and you're willing to work at it, it's unbelievable what you can do. And then they also have a a really great uh, sort of the state of the art virtual instrument. Uh, I don't, synthesizer is just not a good word for it, but it's called Omnisphere. Yeah. And uh, yeah, these things are just extremely powerful tools and they reside just in the computer. So like you were saying, you, you take it with you on the road and you have an idea and it's incredible just how far you can take that idea in a hotel room. So you're you're writing and working on the next record. Are are you with a record label or, or have you been releasing your records um, ind- independently? Uh, my last album, I put it out by myself independently. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good, good for you. That's great. And so you're not sure with the next one, you know, how it'll come out. You may may shop it around, or you may go go again and 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 keep the control yourself. Yeah, you know, I like to keep my options open. Um, mm-hmm. There's a lot more resources these days, and I've always gotten used to kind of doing it myself. So we'll see. <laughs> Well, again, you're that other generation that doesn't see that as the exception. <laughs> when I started Positive Music Records in 1990, there were there were a few people who thought I was a little nuts. Uh, but I just love the idea of being able to control the music and and what happened to it. Uh, so it's a lot more work, you know. But I can tell just from talking to you today that 
you're the kind of person who doesn't shy away from the work at all. And, uh, and in fact, uh, you know, I have a feeling you see that as part of the creative experience too, you know, how, how to get your music out there and keep it true to what it is that, that you know, you're, you're trying to present whenever you play live or whenever somebody hears, hears one of your albums. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, well, that's great. Well, Elan, it's great talking to you today. I appreciate you taking the time. Uh, I think that, you know, your story is, uh, is interesting where you came from and, and the um, amazing success that you've had uh, in, in breaking through in what's a very competitive uh, field, you know, right now, with in, particularly in contemporary and smooth jazz. And, and you're definitely one of the people that I watch to see what they're going to do next. And, and you know, I, I, I wish you all the success in the world. Just, just keep doing what you're doing. It's obviously happening for you. Thanks, Ken, man. Thanks for having me uh, chat with you. And uh, definitely looking forward to crossing paths with you soon. I, I sure hope so. I'd love to have you play on something of mine sometime, or hopefully we'll just cross paths at a at a a, a gig, a mutual festival, some something that we're both on. Uh, but uh, oh, and one last thing, Elan, can you tell folks uh, the best way they can keep up with your touring uh, schedule? So when they want to come see you play, they know where to find you. Sure. Yeah, my website is very simple. It's elantrotman.com. E L A N t-r-o-t-m-a-n.com and i also post uh all of my dates on facebook as well and uh i do use instagram and twitter so pretty easy yeah. to, pretty easy to find on social media good good well i i like people to know that because it, it as you said seeing somebody live is the real deal and and uh i know people after they hear this will be looking checking out your website but especially where they can go hear you play well thanks again and i hope i hope we talk again soon all right, Ken. Well, that's it. That's my interview with Elon Trotman. Coming up next on the podcast, I'm going to go back and revisit my album from 1996, When Night Calls. It was the first album that I had Eric Marienthal, the great saxophonist, play on. Uh, the Granger brothers, Gary and Greg Granger, were on it. They currently play with Acoustic Alchemy. And then, of course, my longtime keyboardist, Jay Rowe. So we're going to go back and take a look at that record, um, talk about how it got made. That record is almost 20 years old. I can't believe it. But I've had some requests from folks to go back, revisit some of my older music uh, on the podcast. So that's the one I picked to do. So until then, thanks for listening. Have a great week ahead. And I'll talk to you again soon. ¶¶